Hello and welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. Everybody thinks they've got a children's book in them, but do they? Today we're going to talk to Kate Harrison, executive editor of Dial Books for Young Readers, about what it takes to make a successful children's book. Plus, a musical performance by my band, The Band Books, rocking out to Dragon's Love Tacos. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, well, welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein, joined by my co-host, Postel Pringle. Yes. You can call me Poss. Or Poss. Yeah. I just felt like I should give the full thing. Yeah, no, no, no. I pre- I appreciate the full thing. I do appreciate the full thing. But uh, also, the short thing is nice. Yes. You know? Short, uh, short people. It's like kind of like... I think there's a song <laughs> no. by uh, Randy Newman called, like, short things, short names Yeah, are important, too. So I think, that, I think that's the title. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for the Randy Newman shout out so early. Um, and Kate Harrison, the executive editor of Dial Books for Young Readers. Yes. Nailed it. <laughs> you got it. Um, so today we're going to talk about children's books. Um, I have children. I read them books. I was once a child and I read books. Um, everyone in this room is involved in some way in children's books. Uh, but, you know, as an author of uh, three children's books, I get asked a lot, and also working at Fatherly, I get asked a lot about like writing children's books and the process, and um, I think like in general, we as parents read an inordinate amount of children's books, mm-hmm. often though the same one over and over and over again. Yeah. And so... Better hope it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, I mean, that's really the thing, is like, what other book is like, you you need to review it, not about reading it once, but reading it like every night for five years. Yeah, you know what I mean? the pressure's on to make them good. Yeah. Well, you're <laughs> yeah. the one, you're responsible for <laughs> making them good. I mean, just before we like launch into it, I did want to call out that you are the editor of Dragons Love Tacos. Yeah. Yeah. Hold for applause. <laughs> Hold. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, come um, on, come on. Tacos! <laughs> Dragon! Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, so, for our readers, it I think it's by Adam Rubin, illustrations by Dan Salmieri. It's one of the most read books in my house, and I think universal, universal, universally loved. Um, so, we'll get into why that book is so joyous and successful. Yeah. I... I kind of can answer that for you. What's your take? Tacos. <laughs> and dragons. Tacos. Yeah, yeah. tacos is a really funny, fun word. I yeah, read it this morning. It's kind of inherently funny. Yeah. yeah. Tacos. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, they are also like, I mean, tacos. <clears throat> I mean, I recently listened to a uh, a kid's podcast where it was like uh, one of those like battles between foods. Yeah. Um, and uh, it might have been brains on or something like that. But um, it was like pizza versus tacos. And I can't remember which one won. But like that's like a hands down like decision. It's not even like a question. What? You know? Like, Wait, no, yeah. I like strong disagree. Are you kidding? No. Uh oh. All right, all right. I mean Rings rings are coming off. We're gonna <laughs> Wait, before we get into that, which I'm clearly right on, I I mean, are you seriously arguing for tacos over? Oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah, well their that... second book was about pizza. So Oh okay. yeah. Win win. Okay. Yeah, Secret I mean, pizza I party. I suppose. I suppose. 
But isn't the first one always like the best? Well, I mean, isn't the first thought I the best sold, I want sold more copies. <laughs> I'm not trying to judge your decision there. In, inside story. Inside <laughs> Did the pizza book have dragons in it, though? Raccoons. Raccoons. Raccoon. Oh, see, well, nah, see, there's yeah. a problem there. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about how you got into editing uh, children's books? Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of came in at a time when it was still... Like there weren't quite as high expectations coming in. Like now we're actually interviewing for assistant jobs now and people come in and have already had like 20 internships and taken the publishing course at Columbia or Pace. Um, but when I came in, I had majored in creative writing in college and just really loved the kind of workshopping process. I had originally thought that I was going to go into journalism and discovered the like daily deadline Yes. Living down in a dark basement while you make phone calls to people who never call you back was yeah. not was not the life for me. <laughs> so um, I had you gone... wanted to be the motherfucker that people called back. Exactly. Yeah. They're begging. They're yeah. begging me to call. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what it's like as a journalist. <laughs> or in my personal life. <laughs> I'm sure that you're right for more uh, the publications mm. uh, that will get called back more than the Daily Tar Heel at UNC <laughs> Chapel Hill. <laughs> But but yeah, so I just, um, that was the first time it kind of occurred to me that that could be a job. So after college, um, I just did some interviews. I came up to New York and completely lucked out and got hired as a publicity assistant in children's books. Did you um, know you wanted to do children's books? I did. Yeah. yeah. I knew what I was it? Kids what, books. what was it about kids books? I think just, I've always been an obsessive reader of kids books. Mm. Um, I grew up reading. Like even, even as a up. young adult? Yeah, even as a young adult. And oh. the market was different then. Like I would, I think then, you know, I was reading up more. There wasn't as much mm. specifically young adult stuff as there is now. I was, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm yeah. kind of embarrassed to say some of the stuff I was reading. A lot of, uh, a lot of B.C. Andrews. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, no, hit us, hit us with, hit us with some Stephen titles. Stephen King. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I, I was kind of going more into the uh, adult, not always uh, high quality adult no but, but it's i was reading yeah, that's no, always yeah. been my that's my theory yeah. with my kids too as long as you're reading yeah yeah Your well, eyes are I, was, moving. <laughs> I was gonna say my, my father like we my brother and i and a couple of my friends we would make pilgrimages to a uh to a comic book store that was like a couple miles away and like literally we would like take two two different buses i grew up in atlanta so you could like have to take multiple buses to get anywhere just to get down the block but like we would, uh, we would make pilgrimages to a um, to a couple of different um, comic book stores and spend all our money on comic books. And <clears throat> some of my some of my friends' parents would be a little bit disparaging about like the quality and stuff like that. But my parents were always like, especially my dad was like, they're reading. Yeah, <laughs> like, just yeah. celebrate that. Yeah, celebrate it's that. funny. I mean, exactly. you know. it's my kids are five and seven, and they're you know because I work at Fatherly, I get a lot of kids' books in. But when they are left to their own devices, they read Dogman oh my gosh, Dog and Captain Man. Underpants. Dogman mm. is all over my house, too. Yes. And I read it, and I hate it. <laughs> like, I, I think the, I don't like the story. I don't think it communicates positive morals at all. Um, I don't like the format very much. It's by this guy, Dav Pilkey. Mm-hmm. Extremely Is successful. this Dogman or uh, Captain Underpants? Both. Both. They're yeah. the same guy. Same guy. Oh. But then I also realize that, like, that's my kid. They're on their own journey. Yeah. And yeah. like, if I just let them hang out there, they'll develop a love for reading, which can then, um, you know, be applied to different material. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So go on. So, yeah. So 
you came here, you started as a publicity, uh, on the publicity side. Yeah, I'm not sure how I got hired because I'm pretty sure I went in there and told her I wanted to be an editor. Yeah. And she's still very kindly <laughs> hired me anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, today I don't think this would happen. Yeah. But, uh, and then she actually ended up leaving soon after um, and going to a different company and told me about an editorial job that was open over there. So I was only in publicity for about four months. Yeah. Um, which was for the best for everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was not a very good publicist. <laughs> yeah. Write about this book. I mean, if I was editing it, I think on like page 23, there's like Some a comments. weird... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I'm going to sell this ending. <laughs> right. Have you thought about changing that? Okay. Um, well, I think one of the things that I have always been curious about, about children's books now, is that like Dial has a specific, like any other... Um, segment of publishing um, different houses have their kind of different house styles and the things they excel in what would dial is part of penguin random house um, what is kind of dials thing yeah I mean we're kind of going for the blend of commercial and literary so we always want to be publishing things that we think are going to get the start reviews and really make an impact on kids and kind of um, dive a little deeper than maybe some of the more commercial books that other imprints would do. Um, we have a big focus on diversity and inclusion, just trying to get new voices in. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's our... Well, can I, Kate, what attracts you? Like what, <clears throat> when something when something comes across your desk, when a submission comes in, what makes you say like, uh, not quite, you know, and what makes you say like, yes, you know? I mean, for me, it's so much about voice. And if someone's doing something different or really affecting with the voice um, and giving, I mean, there's only so many things you can write about, right? So I'm not expecting completely different, this totally new out of the box idea, but if you can put your own spin on it and use a really unique, compelling voice to tell me that story, I'm much more willing to kind of dive in and work with someone if I don't think the plot is quite working. Um, but so if, voice if more voice than really plot. really speaks to me. Yeah. I mean, I plot think, has to be there, too, but that I can think be worked on. <laughs> one of the things when I... So I wrote a book called Can I Eat That, which was based on Achilles not eating anything, which he still doesn't eat anything. Yeah. Um, but my background is in food, so I was a food critic, and I would... A restaurant critic, and I would go out, and I would have all these amazing meals, and I loved food, and I would come back, and in my house, food was just a battleground. Every dinner was, like, fighting, and I wanted to create a book that was playful and not really didactic. Like, I'm not telling him you have to eat. It's no pressure. It's just kind of like, hey, food is food is fun. Like, food is something to talk about. It's something to have wordplay about and whatever. Um, it was published by Fiden. And one of my big, the biggest challenge, I think, for me when I was writing that book was who am I talking to and like, how am I talking to them? Because, you know, um, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, you have obviously like the preschool to three, three to five, five to seven. And I think seven to nine is like the, the yeah, for like early chapter books. Yeah. yeah. And each one of those demographics has like a pretty different way you talk to the kids. Um, so when you're reading, like when you say voice, I feel like it's not, it must not only be style, but it's also like, what is the author's relationship to the reader? Yeah. I mean, I think 
I think you can tell when an author has a lot of respect for the kids they're writing for, mm. um, and they're not talking to them like they don't know anything and they're a baby in this sort of very, um, you know, cloying Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, ba- basically like talking down to them. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then you also want to have them in mind, you know, so you're not, you're not writing for another adult. So it's kind of finding that balance of, and I think a lot of it can be done um, through humor, through rhythm, through... Um, yeah, just really trying to get in there and speak directly to a kid and not write what you think you should be teaching a kid or like the lesson you want to impart, like really making it a story. And I think it's hard as a writer because I'm an adult. The people who are making the purchasing decisions are adults. Yeah. Right. And so you really, you're kind of relying on them to be able to also put their kids first. I, a lot of books come across my desk which are like absolutely beautiful and like super trenchant and emotional stories but for like a 38 year old dude and like I'm sure when I uh, when I read it to my kids they're like the 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 melancholy NPR-ness of it all just kind of like <laughs> right. goes over, over. The, yeah but right. to, to that end, to that end, like you are actually writing for two different audiences to some extent. The, true. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the audience, the audience that's receiving it, and also the person who is disseminating the words, the the, the vessel with which it gets to the kid. So you are, you kind of have to. I mean, I always think about that in terms of uh, like you mentioned NPR. I think about it in terms of like Pixar or like a lot of the great like Dreams work, DreamWorks sort of films where there's jokes and humor um, and storylines that are impactful for. For the adults and also stuff that's like themes that are very central to whatever a kid is feeling something that hits them very yeah like very intentionally but if you don't have those overarching things then like you know the the, the no I don't want to take my kid I don't want to take uh, my son Otis to like to see a really terrible movie and I remember doing that when he was <clears throat> I think two or three, I can't remember what it was. Like somebody, for some reason, had a day off. I had to take him to, I took him to the um, the Pavilion movie theater, which I don't oh, know. Oh yeah, it's, now it's Nighthawk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Now it's Bourgeois <laughs> Burgers. Oh, yeah. And, yes. Yeah, Park Slope. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, Bourgeois Burgers, Park Slope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I took him to the pavilion. Sounds like it sounds like a children's book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bad, bad bougie and burgers. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I took him to the pavilion to see. Uh, I can't remember what film. it was. Um, I don't know. Whatever it was, it was terrible. Yeah, it was really, really like bad. And I and I felt like and I don't even know if he got that much out of it. I think he did get something out of it, but it was really hard for me to sit through. And when I think about actual like like books. Speaking, actually, this is a question that I think you both should answer, um, which is like, how do you, when you begin the process of editing a book and you begin the process of writing a book, how do you actually like approach those two different, like those two different pathways of like gathering, making sure you're writing something for the adult and making sure that this is something for the kid? I, I mean, as a writer, I'm not that concerned about writing for the adult. Okay. Like, I'm an adult, I am passing it through, an editor is going to look at it, an editor is an adult, and they have expertise as well. Um, but I think my main focus is how do I make something that I find interesting? Like, I'm the adult. Like, yeah. I'm also writing for myself, writing for yeah. kids. It's like, if you don't think it's dope, then it's not going to be dope. Yeah. Right, okay. And, and 
and I have full faith or if, you know, if it's a successful book that, um, that it'll appeal to adults. But my main focus is the kids. I mean, at the end of the day, they're the demographic. And mm-hmm. I think my editor, um, Cecily Kaiser at Fiden, she was very good at saying, well, you're a little bit above here or like you're a little bit below or like wordplay is something that I'm, I'm obsessed with. Mm-hmm. But it is true that for a lot of kids, it just doesn't register because they're not quite there yet. It's like sometimes when you're so much humor relies on like this absurdity, but absurdity relies on knowing what's real and what's absurd. And so for a lot of kids, they don't have that baseline understanding of what's, what's, what's so funny about this. It's like, yeah, they just ingest it as something normal. They don't know any different. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. How about for you? Yeah. I mean, I think things can work on two levels your point like I think there can be humor in a story that maybe the kid won't get every single reference and there's some things in there that they'll get when they're a little older that the parents can appreciate but then you also have to make sure that's balanced out with humor that's really at their at their level and sometimes even if they don't fully understand it I think they get a good laugh at like my son has this joke book that he doesn't understand I have to explain (laughs) half of the jokes but he's still like it's his favorite dog-eared book yeah Um, he doesn't get the because sometimes it's like the inflect like they can tell the inflection that it's a joke and that's what the idea of a joke is funny exactly yeah yeah there's a punchline there just the idea that there's a punchline um well that's like a great segue into dragons of tacos because um I also think, although this, so I was telling Paz, um, I'm in a band called The Band Books, and we set children's books to rock and roll. What? We do a version of Dragons Love Tacos. How have I not heard this? We're kind of new, All right, but we're performing at um, <laughs> at Brooklyn Public Library on Tuesday. That's amazing. Oh, nice, dude. Um, so we do Dragons Lift Tacos as a mashup of like an Ennio Morricone um, spaghetti western in the beginning, <laughs> and then there's a the build up because it's like a long build up. Yeah. The build up is House of the Rising Sun, um, and then there's I'm like your groupie. It's yeah. I'm like. Dude, this is it a, is the coolest thing that I've ever done in my life, I have to say. But the the thing that, one of the reasons I like doing it so much, and the reason we do it is to show kids that there's kind of rhythm and there's music in books. Um, we do Where the Wild Things Are, which when you read, you know, they gnash their terrible teeth, they roll their terrible eyes. They Like, there's a beautiful rhythm to that book. It's caps for sale. It's like, yep. caps, caps, caps for sale, 50 cents a cap. You know, like... Um, but the language itself is immensely appealing to adults. Okay, we're going to have a musical interlude. This is my band, The Band Books, performing live at the Brooklyn Public Library. Self-aggrandizing? Sure, but also fun. Uh, feel free to read this with your kids, with the music. It's our version of Adam Rubin and Dan Salmieri's masterpiece, Dragon's Love Tacos. Hey kid, did you know that dragons love tacos? They love beef tacos and chicken tacos. They love really big gigantic tacos and tiny little baby tacos as well. Why do dragons love tacos? Maybe it's a smell of the sizzling pan. 
Maybe it's a crunch of the crispy tortillas. Maybe it's a secret. Either way, if you want to make friends with dragons, tacos are key. Hey, dragon, why do you guys love tacos so much? But wait, as much as dragons love tacos, they hate spicy salsa even more. They hate spicy green salsa and spicy red salsa. They hate spicy chunky salsa and spicy smooth salsa. If the, salsa is, if the salsa is spicy at all, dragons can't stand it. Why do dragons hate spicy salsa? Well, just one drop of hot sauce makes a dragon's ears smoke. Just one single speck of a hot pepper makes a dragon snort sparks. Spicy salsa gives dragons the tummy troubles. And when dragons get the tummy troubles, oh boy. If you want to make tacos for dragons, keep the topics mild. Tomatoes, lettuce, cheese. These are all good toppings for tacos for dragons. Hey, dragon, how do you feel about spicy salsa? got rid of all that spicy wait a second what are those little green things in the salsa you didn't read the fine print totally mild salsa now with spicy jalapeno peppers
dragons help you rebuild your house? Maybe they're good Samaritans. Maybe they feel bad for wrecking it. Maybe they're just in it for the taco breaks. After all, dragons love tacos. Thank you very much. There's this, the part that's like, uh, there's the repetition, there's the repetition in this book. I'm just going to read a little bit for our readers at home. It's like, hey kid, did you know that dragons love tacos? They love beef tacos and chicken tacos. They love really big, gigantic tacos and tiny little baby tacos as well. Why do dragons love tacos? Maybe it's a smell from the sizzling pan. Maybe it's a crunch of the crispy tortillas. Maybe it's a secret. You know, like... You read that very well. Yeah. I, I mean, I, this is like the hundredth time I've read this book. More, more, more. Yeah, you, should, you should audition for the audio version of this. <laughs> yeah. um, but tell me about the your work on this, how it came in. Yeah. Was the rhythm there? T- tell me about well, this book. It was actually a totally different book when that one came in. I got it. Adam um, was so new, he didn't even have an agent at the time. It came from um, Dan's agent. Um, Time out. Oh. Um, Adam Rubin is the author, oh, yeah. and Dan Salmieri is the illustrator. Yes, that's a good <laughs> side note. Um, so yeah, so it came in, and it was at the time just a list of things. It was like dragons love tacos, werewolves love waffles, yetis love spaghetti, and there was kind of no story to it. At the end, I think they had like a big picnic and got food everywhere. Um, and I had met with Dan a few times, just looking at his portfolio, and really loved his work. So, um, double time out. Yeah. Um, so as an editor, you also look at the illustrators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of times I'll meet with our art director at the same time with illustrators, but yeah, a lot of times illustrators will come in, um, and they may have a story that goes along with it. Um, mm-hmm. so we'd be maybe so, signing something up that way, but then also just looking to match up with text. To me, the story is, I mean, I love the story. It's pretty straightforward. I mean, like, yeah. I think it's a really nice point you brought up earlier that the there does need to be a plot, but so much of the success or failure of a book is just in the the language and mm-hmm. that voice. But this, in particular, I think this book is such a joy to read out loud because it has a little bit of that call and response. It has a little bit of the um, that one, two, three repetition. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Maybe mm-hmm. like it's just a verbal book. And I think that's something that is really unique to children's literature in the sense that for the vast majority, for a big part of the way the book is going to be consumed is by reading and by listening. So the language needs to work, um, you know, spoken. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Like, so Poss's other job or one of his many jobs is uh, uh, hip hop. Yeah, writing rhymes. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So like, what's your experience reading children's books? Do you fall back on that rhythm and meter? Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I started off like the first, um, the first artistic endeavor I I was ever interested in was actual rap and actual rhyme and then got into acting and, and, you know, went into a lot of uh, classical theater when involving like Shakespeare and that all obviously involves meter. So like rhythmic language, poetic language, rhythmic poetic language was something is, is something that I always look for just as a person. And so when I actually sit down to read a book, like generally the books that I want to read to my kids are generally rhyme. And if they don't rhyme, they have a like intrinsic, like rhythm in them because I think largely like that's also the thing that keeps me interested in the process of reading it kind of either that um, or because I'm also an actor either that or the characters are so um, are so strong and jump out of the page one of my favorites uh, is the Olivia series and like my I have more fun I think I have more fun reading that book than my kids have listening to that book because I get like to do the different voices and all oh, that my kids stuff. hate my yeah. voices always <laughs> like dad don't read like that they yeah. flip out yeah but I definitely like yeah with, with, without doubt without doubt I think there's a the 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 Poetic language and the cadence is something that I always cadence, look for. Cadence, yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. It's always something that I look for um, in in a book. I was just thinking, um, uh, oh yeah, that Shel Silverstein was like by far growing up like my favorite. Yeah. Well, that's my interesting because um, I also love Shel Sil- Silverstein, but I'm curious for you. Just talking to other folks in the industry, they say that like rhyming rhymes rhyming it's quite difficult and maybe like mm-hmm. my agent says it's not selling as much these days what's that your true? take really that's what oh, she says i'm surprised by that. she's not a children's book agent i mean she's great <laughs> i love her she's listening uh, she now <laughs> rika you, yeah, you yeah. are the best agent in the world thank you so much but rhyming i mean it can be hit or miss honestly like i'm not there are some editors who are just like don't send me rhyme no I more couplets yeah, it yeah. Was, the, the rhymes gotta be good it's they gotta, gotta be good and yeah. it's gotta be unusual i think when you get into that sort of lulling yeah every two lines rhyme and then they're trying to tell this complicated story and you just kind of fall asleep in the meter of it and you can tell that they're going out of their way to rhyme and mm. yes. like curving the story around the rhyme so that yeah yeah, it's all about the rhyme and not the story at all. And yeah, I feel like rhyming couplets, you cannot have like a 600 word manuscript exactly. of rhymes. Like this isn't like Dante's Inferno. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of um, like the difference between like the book version of like Chuck D, like who has all these, he's rhyming, he has all these important political things to say. And like Tone Loke, I'm, I'm dating myself here. But like who has who's rhyming but has absolutely nothing important to say. Right. Basically. Right. Yeah. Well you don't want the you don't want the artifice of the rhyme to trump the narrative. Exactly. Right. You, know? you don't want to be aware of the rhyme so yeah. much as like yeah. I mean, to your point, it's great like so much of a kid's book experience is having it read out loud. So if you have something that just puts you in the rhythm and makes it super fun to read, the kids feel that too. So yeah. I'm all in. If somebody does rhyme well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and <clears throat> so uh, I actually have a question for you. I have an answer. Ooh. Nice. Um, so you've written three books. What yeah. are your three books again? Can I Eat That? Mm-hmm. What's Cooking? Yeah. And Brick, Who Found Herself in Architecture. And then next year, uh, Can You Eat? Which is a board book version of Can 
I eat that. Uh-huh. And I don't know if it's announced yet. No, nah, whatever. Um, the Book of Balls, which is <laughs> <laughs> my balls. favorite. Balls, balls, not not balls, but balls. Balls. Yes. Yes. yes, yes like totally. eyeballs, golf balls, yes. footballs, pinballs, softballs. Yes. Disco balls. <laughs> um, yeah, those are yeah. my books. So you have talked about how uh, repetition is a very important thing. Yeah. And, and something that came to my mind was uh, when you were talking about repetition, probably also one of my very, very favorite books was uh, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Mm. Yeah. I, just, I love, I just fucking love. hate that book. Do you really? Yeah. Dude, why do they run away at the end? Why do they run away at the end? I don't understand why they run. Because I, I it's a bear. But um, why it's a bear. I do not enjoy that. I don't like that book. I don't like reading it to my Sorry, I just don't. But do your kids like it? My I kids don't... love that book. Well, look, I'm going to preempt your question. I don't know if there's a question there. But <laughs> well, there was, there was. The question was just about how you find, like, how do you find, um, where do you insert the repetition? Oh. How do you insert the repetition in into your writing? So, like, for, it depends on the subject matter. For, can I eat that? It's so much a, a um, it's like, there's a lot of wordplay. So, it's like, if I eat jelly and I eat fish can I eat jellyfish? Hmm. You know, so a lot of it, it comes from whatever the subject matter is. Um, I don't really, even though I talk a lot about repetition, I think it works for like Castro Sale and Dragons Love Tacos. Um, Maurice Sondak used repetition really beautifully. I don't use it uh, that much. I try to the the thing that I think about when I'm writing for kids is you know, I write a lot for adults, right? Mm-hmm. And you have so many words to communicate what you want to communicate with adults, and they can go with you. And it's a little bit like, hey, I'm taking you on an adventure, a word adventure, and it might be a crazy metaphor here and whatever. For kids, you it's like you have to make a rue out of the words. You have to distill it into what, a, like a crystalline form, which is so basic. It's like writing a haiku instead of writing a villanelle. And you you have to just pick the right words that it is, uh, that's accessible to them. But I always try to have it be still beautiful. Like mm. you don't want it to just be utilitarian, like I'm getting the point across. That's, that's, and that also actually makes like the editing process like, I've gone back and forth with my editor for like weeks for some, like for one oh, word. Oh, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> that's absurd on one level. But on the other, it's like, well, there's only like 150 words in the book. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's a big. And the idea is that you're making something that somebody is going to continuously go back to. Yeah. So every single word is important. Yeah. I mean, there's like, for instance, like you read it so much. There's things in these books, in the books that like, for instance, in Caps for Sale, it's, um, it's like first he had on his own checked cap, then a bunch of gray caps, brown caps, blue caps, and red caps. And it's like, that's not brown. That's like ochre. <laughs> and every time I read it. Where was the art director? Or, <laughs> or yellow. And I have this, I have the board book version at home, and like I've crossed out brown and put yellow because it's not brown. It's like, you're going to obsess over this book. I have to say, Dragons of Tacos like, really stands up to that level of obsession. Moon Man is one of my other favorite ones. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So, so uh, yeah, J- JDS brought um, brought a bunch of books in, and I was going to ask you why you brought those in. Actually. 
Well, I brought Moon. So Tom Younger, who's a hero of mine, recently passed away. He was a children's book author, big in the 60s and 70s. He's French. Um, and the reason I brought in Moon Man is because it's a very, well, to honor Tommy Younger's legacy, um, but also because it's a very melancholy an uneasy book. Mm-hmm. Tommy Unger grew up um, in Strasbourg. He it was a contested area between the French and the Germans during World War II. He's like really obviously scarred from World War II. Um, same thing with Marie Sundak, who ingested the trauma of the Holocaust, and it comes across in a lot of his work. And you know, you were saying you read Olivia to your kids. I really tend towards these darker, melancholy books because that's who I am. Yeah. I mean, those are the books I grew up with, but that's also, I'm a little bit more, uh, I mean, I have my own issues. And like, I find those to be really beautiful to have those, a sense of unease and mystery in the books. Yeah. Um, and Moon Man is a great example of that. It's about a the the man in the moon who comes down to the, earth he wants to play with you know he wants to dance he wants to be part of society and he's kind of driven away as an outcast and it ends with him back in the moon um you know realizing that he can never be a part of society like my kids would much prefer captain underpants to that but to me it's like really important to let children's literature reflect some sense of it models a way of sadness that I think has been useful or like where the wild things are. There's a moment in it where Max is not quite held hostage by the wild things, but he wants to leave and they won't let him or Mickey in the night kitchen. He's getting baked in a fucking oven. Yeah. 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 That is super, that is super dark. And that was always actually one of my favorite. Yeah. uh, But there's something that like sticks like a, like an irritant becomes a pearl. Mm-hmm. And so Tommy Younger, who I I met him once, is the, the best moment of my life. Um, you know, he was a really interesting dude because he was flying pretty high in the children's book scene. And then he also made adult comics called, uh, he has a book called Fornicon. And um, at an ALA, an American... Like, like, like X-rated comics? Is that yes, what you mean? Yes, oh, yes, wow. yes, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's an American Librarians Conference Association Conference, the ALA, and someone got up, and he also made like very political cartoons for the Village Voice or whatever. But um, a librarian got up and she was like, "How can you write books for children and make these comic books of and uh, make these com- adult comics?" And he's like, "Well, without fucking, we'd all be out of business because there'd be no kids." <laughs> and such is the power of the ALA that pretty oh, much after that. He was blacklisted, and his books really fell out of favor for a long time. He moved back to Strasbourg, France, and that was kind of the end of Tommy Younger. Just after that comment? Well, he pissed off a room full of librarians. Like, (laughs) librarians, and you can speak to this. I mean, librarians have an enormous amount of power. They have a lot of power, yeah. We'll be right back with more of Kate Harrison from Dial Books.
What role does darkness, those heavier emotions, play in children's books? Yeah, I think, and I think that's coming in more, and maybe not in specifically the style of um, of Sindak and Unger, but like John Klassen is another good example that we were talking mm. about earlier. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there is really something to it. Just gets kids thinking, and I think sometimes parents and gatekeepers tend to be overprotective yeah. of what kids can understand and question, and maybe you have to be there to kind of talk it out with them. Um, so, like, as but, an editor, you are one level of gatekeeper. Yeah. But it must be, and you also have to make business decisions. So, if you're, if you have the fear or concern that the other level of gatekeeper, the parents aren't going to allow the book in. How do you make that? Like, is it a gut judgment or? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is gut and talking it over. Um, And then, I mean, sometimes you still, like I published a book that came out a few years ago. um, That's hilarious. It's called, can somebody please scratch my back? And it's this really um, rude, oblivious elephant who, um, just not Elmer. <laughs> no, not Elmer. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um, who's like begging all these other animals to scratch his back the whole book, and then finally a hedgehog comes along and saves the day, and he just like flings him off at the end, like he's gotten what he wants, and then kind of yeah, yeah. moves on. And it's just like about you know being so inside yourself, you can't pay attention to anyone else. But a lot of the reviews. Like, oh, I can't believe how mean spirited this is. And right. Yeah. I mean, how that's can he what he not uh, learn his lesson. But the kid, I mean, the kid picks up on that. The kid realizes what a jerk. Yeah, but that's the thing. The it's thing. like, yeah. Yeah. kids aren't writing, like, it must be complicated as an editor because kids aren't the ones writing the reviews. Like, if you had right. reviews written by kids, they'd be like, yeah, clearly this is what's going on. But right. you do have those gatekeepers or, um, librarians or whether it gets into schools it's like a huge part of it you rely on those gatekeepers yeah do you see you said you saw getting the darkness creeping in more and more or has it i don't know if it's so much darkness i mean i think yeah darkness picture books are taking a turn to try to do more Mm -hmm. than -hmm. they have in the past and not every book i mean there's room for like the wacky silly too but i think that the industry as a whole has realized um, that there's just there's a lot more room for what kids can understand and take in and what you can do with a picture book to sort of expand the worldview, get different voices in, show kids different experiences. Like you were talking about, you know, these authors that have these experiences that kind of come through into their books and kids take a lot from that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I can say as a parent, I actually I particularly appreciate the books because it feels like it acknowledges something that they're going to come across or that they're feeling and it allows it allows room for that you know to some in their own minds well pots like for you like you know you're black and when you were what (laughs) yeah it's true when when did it happen i feel like we have to mention that every time (laughs) in the podcast (laughs) we were doing a podcast we should actually put that at the top yeah yeah i'm i I am pos i'm black um when you were growing up did you see adequate representation for you in children's books was that even an issue for you or like i mean it was certainly an issue um but no there was no uh adequate Representation. I mean, I think that there has since been a, uh, I mean, you could probably speak to this better than I can. I think there's since been like pockets and moments where where they've tried to create um, Afrocentric sort of uh, leaning books. Um, but that was, that. it felt like all of that stuff happened way after I was, when I was a kid. Um, and there was a, 
um, yeah, that there, there was a there was a bleak of- representation of 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 kids books that specifically address like black kids now there were there's stuff like uh uh ezra jack keats snowy day and yeah exactly and but you're in atlanta it's like stuff. what the fuck is this snow yeah yeah i know exactly snow although i although if you know the few times that we did have snow in atlanta i was definitely as fascinated by that snow as the kid is in that book yeah um but um yeah so there there, there were very very few like uh actual representations it wasn't until actually I got into like YA reading a lot more that kind of stuff um, um, that that I've actually found like actual black African-American representation in the books. And even that sometimes was like kind of like jive turkey kind of kind of stuff. Right. You know what I mean? Or written by white authors. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. exactly. So um, I think we would be remiss if we didn't also ask you what you are reading at home to your kids. Yeah. Um. Well, it's funny. It's kind of the same thing that you talk about. Like, there's the books that. Well, I actually want to know. I want to know what you're reading to your kids, and also what were your personal favorites growing up. Sure. I mean, I think my daughter. I have a three year old who I think is very into the kind of comforting series sorts of things right now, like Olivia, Ladybug Girl, Llama Llama, um, Llama Llama, um, Llama Llama, Rip Pajama. Exactly. Uh, my Is son. that the ludicrous? Uh, no, it was uh, it was Migos. Yeah, Migos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty funny actually. My son is into Dogman, as yours is, like just over and over. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't even know. Yeah, I mean the the interest never never dies. He has all six of them and just will yeah go and go and go and go. My thing about Dogman is, um, I mean, it speaks to a bigger issue of like whether you think that books should have messages or not. Because there's definitely nothing uniquely meaningful, you know, about that book. And in fact, like, there's a lot of bullying. There's a lot of, like, mischief. Yeah. Which I don't want that. But but that, but that is part of, that's part of a kid's, like, environment, that mischief, that, that you know. I know, but <laughs> have you read the books? I haven't, actually. Oh, yeah. I've, I've, like, flipped through them, but not really. They're kind not, of, yeah. like, they're intensely... Um, Free from virtue. (laughs) (laughs) But don't you think that kind of comes back to what we were talking about before, that they can like read that and recognize that it's crazy and silly and funny and Yeah, but you only (laughs) I mean, I hope so. But it's kind of like I mean maybe it like gives them a sort of naughty like naughty pleasure. A little bit like you talking about like uh one of you were talking about like your kids telling you jokes. Like, I know, like, my son, whenever he tells a joke, like, he really wants to, like, nail it. And particularly if it's, um, if it's something that, if there's some mischief attached to the actual joke, like, he yeah. really, like, he, you know, he's, he's, he's very apprehensive of it, but also very proud yes. of it. Yeah. He's very proud <laughs> of making that You're giving the look that, that I feel like he gives you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that's, that's what he's like. Before he says the punchline, he looks like, you know, looks like a Cheshire cat. Like, yeah. yeah. Totally. Um. Okay, so your kid's like Dogman. Yeah, and my son's it, really into graphic novels now. Um, he's six. He's six. Yeah. yeah so Hilo, um, Zeta. He started reading like Roller Girl. I feel like I'll nice. keep moving him up. But that seems to be a good. I love graphic novels, so I have. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I want to keep keep pushing that. But so. And when would, you were a kid. Yeah. 
when I was a kid. I also, I loved series. I read, I mean, Ramona Quimby was like my favorite. I read all of those over and over. And then like the Anastasia books. Um, What else did I read? I mean, I read a lot of stuff that I'm not super proud of. My mom was an English teacher, so she would be bringing home the like Newberry winners. And I would read those too and balance them out with like Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley Twins. And You know, I'm reading The Borrowers to my kids now. Oh, I love those. You know The Borrowers? No. It's um, Pod, Homily, and Ariety. It's like about these small people who live under the... I love those books the floor it's actually interesting that so that book was i think published in the 50s and like 80 percent of the physical things in that book are totally obsolete now that kids have no yeah. idea yeah. what what any of it is um so it's that was so funny it's almost like kind of like a little history lesson yeah you have to explain like everything trying to explain all yeah. the physical objects of the 1880s to my kid. <laughs> well when i was a like kid. dad can't you just read dog man like, oh, okay, okay okay um oh yeah so i wanted to so this podcast can be actually useful for people yeah <laughs> like <laughs> it can't it, can? it could be really? hypothetically okay you, you're really i mean you're really blowing my mind i'm um, black this podcast can be helpful for people let's go down like i mean again yeah, i mean there's only so many things i can deal with in one day dude. um what would it you know i get asked all the time how do i get a kid's book published questions do you need an agent and what would you recommend to someone the questions i get most yeah do i need an agent do I have an illustrator with a sign? Do I shell out for an illustrator and have an illustrator before I submit the manuscript? And um, just like to whom should I like, how do I find who to submit it to? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I always tell people for writing children's book is there's this great group called the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators that have chapters all over the country. Um And you can just, they have conferences and you can meet up with other writers and they'll have editors and agents come in. You can pay extra and have an editor or agent critique your work and give you feedback. Um, That has been a place where some people meet their editors or agents and um, sign on with them, though Mm -hmm. that's kind of more uncommon more. It's just kind of really learning the craft and learning what the market is and, you know, what goes into the process. Um, so that's where I always tell people to start because it's just a great way to have resources at your fingertips. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do, I think it's super helpful to have an agent. Would you recommend a specifically a children's book agent or? Yeah. I mean, there are some, there are some that do both. Um, but I think in general, you want to have somebody who has the children's book editor contacts um, for sending things out and just making sure that your yeah. book gets into the right hands. Um, that's not to say, like, you know, there's there's plenty of adult agents who do kids yeah. also. Yeah, but, I don't mean like a kid agent. Oh, yeah, no, no. Here's my 11 year old agent. Hey, look here. See, one of the residuals on this one. Yeah, no. Look here. See? What's for lunch? Yeah. And about pairing with an illustrator? Illustrator, I would say no. Unless, I think sometimes agents will pair up an author and illustrator if they have somebody specific in mind and they might have a better sense of what will really work with your manuscript. Um, again, like sometimes like Adam and Dan for Dragon's Low Tacos came in, like just met each other at a party and that time it worked out. Usually a lot of times um, 
when people send something in that they've just had like a neighbor illustrate it just it takes away from the text because it yeah it's not it gives professional you, and yeah yeah i mean i think that is, people are often surprised that it makes less that you shouldn't have that people think like the more work you do before you submit the better chance you have but actually it's kind of like on you guys to see yeah what visual style fits yeah it's kind of fun to pair and you can put in art notes like yeah. If your text is really spare and you have a specific illustration in mind that you feel it's important to convey to get the story, then by all means, write are there in. certain are there certain questions that you that because I'm I'm assuming that well I mean actually I don't know you tell me whether or not the process is you telling the authors and the illustrator like what they should do or what's missing or they're like do you do that sort of thing like a director does where you're like just ask the right questions of them you know. Um, I mean, I try to just ask a lot of questions and lead people into the. Do you thing, really need this line? Organic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> just hypothetically. Do you think that that's actually good? Yeah. Did you mean to repeat this word? I mean, if you did, that's totally fine. Yeah, exactly, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's a delicate process. Yeah. Of notes. <laughs> what, what, what did your What did your editor? Um, so I don't know if this is industry standard, but the way that it worked with me and Cecily was that they wouldn't acquire the book until the manuscript was already edited and in good shape. So like with my other books for adults, obviously that's not the case. You get the deal, you work on it, and then you submit at the end. They buy it up front. But with kids' books, at least in my experience, you and maybe because I know them now, I would have the conversation to get it into a place where they would acquire it. And then basically, then they would go to an illustrator. It become it would get illustrated. I would be able to give feedback on the design, and I wouldn't really mess with the text until, co- like, copy edit, um, and fact check. And then if there's like a the, my big thing is, uh, all these books have wordplay and food, and Fiden does a lot uh, internationally. So there's a UK edition. And like I went back and forth for months on whether you call peas peas or mange too, which is what you call them in the UK, <laughs> or like um, I think there's a difference between like what broiled means here and there, and so you get really into the weeds in that. But or like in the ball book, mm-hmm. like football was problematic. Yeah, um, matzo ball was problematic. I did do like all like um, softball doesn't exist there, so. But all that stuff is like way after the fact. So I went through a very rigorous, like what I said earlier, because every word is a huge kind of fraction of the text because there's so few words. Um, I went through a very rigorous editing process. The book was acquired. And then at that point, it's done. I mean, like for me, kids' books have been great because they're not like a ton of money. Like, I don't. I would not be able to make a living solely as a children's book author, mm-hmm. but the work—it's a lot of work, but not obviously as much as doing a novel or a memoir. Um, and then it's done. You know, like you you put in the time to do the text, and it's and it's. Yeah. Did you choose your illustrator? No. You choose, okay. No. Um, Fiden connected me with Julia Rothman, who illustrated the first three books for, and we have a different illustrator for the ball book. Um, but like to, I think it's common for a lot of illustrators, but what I valued about that is I would never have been able to come up with the ideas 
and the visual solutions for the text that a professional illustrator could. Mm -hmm. Um, And the style really matched. And I think like that is a, they have such a wide breadth and a creative director and art director knows so many people that they can really find and pair you know, correctly. Is it a particular challenge when you work for some when you work with someone who is writing and illustrating it? Um, you know, I think there's challenges both ways. It's kind of in some ways it can be easier because they already kind of come in with a vision and already know how they want the two to interact and it can just be kind of easier to see that up front when you first see a project. Um and sometimes it can be hard to find an illustrator, just people's schedules are super yes. booked up and mm-hmm. Which is crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not crazy, but sometimes it's like, dude, you, really? You can't take this on? It's like you have eight months to draw 28 pictures. That's so hard. People like get what my son would years. say. So hard. It makes me want to be an illustrator. To be, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thanks this for is really having fun. me. This was really fun. Um, Maybe we'll put up a reading list online so you can read some of the books we talked about. I think that would be yeah. cool. Can I ask you a question? Oh, geez. <laughs> what? No, I'm just saying it's I'm quick. Like, it's a quick, it's I a don't quick know. little thing. It's quick. How do you feel about Pinkalicious? I'm I'm not a big fan of Pinkalicious. I mean, either. Yeah. My daughter is. <laughs> yeah. I cannot I haven't, I haven't brought it. it home. I have to read it like multiple times. Really? In one sitting. Yeah. yeah. All right, what's Pinkalicious? You don't want to know. Okay. You don't want to know. I won't. Okay, so listeners, yeah. don't read Pinkalicious. Yeah, exactly. Read all the other books. All dial yeah. books are amazing. They're all amazing. They're all amazing. Yeah. Okay, great. That's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay, well, that's a wrap for us at the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. Also produced it with... Anthony Roman, executive produced by Andrew Berman. This episode was recorded at Duotone Studios in Manhattan with Juan, our engineer. If you like the podcast, uh, find it, rate it, review it. If you don't like it, keep it to yourself. Okay, talk to you next week. Beaten and broken and scrambled and fried.